Good morning, saints of Bethany Baptist Church. Um, I'm sure I've been introduced, but my name is Bobby Scott. If you don't know me, I know you all. I'm a, a friend and a brother in the Lord to your church. Uh, I love uh, this church and what God is doing through it. Um, but I'm here because uh, these strange times that we're living in, and I sure don't know uh, what's happening, but I'm thankful that I know who does, and that's God. You know, at the beginning of this year, I really wanted to be organized and stay on top of things in my schedule, and so I had my secretary order me a planner. She got me two, so I could choose between them. And there has simply been no more useless thing in 2020 than to buy a planner. But God knew all this, and that gives me comfort. Still makes these times strange. I mean, here I'm pre preaching to PJ, and uh, June is here, and John Lear here, and that's it, y'all. Uh, and this is strange. But during difficult times uh, that God providentially is leading us through, it doesn't make it more difficult for God to lead his people to please him. And I want to encourage you with that this morning, that there really is nothing new under the sun. This is not the first time the church has had to endure a pandemic. Remember the Spanish flu of 1918? It infected an estimated 500 million people, a third of the world's population. It killed an estimated 20 to 50 million people, including some 675,000 Americans. And nor is this the first time that we've lived through polarizing political divides. Remember the Civil War? The politicians of the North and the South were divided over state rights and slavery, and it led to an entire war. Neither is this the first time that we've lived through race riots that in 1921, uh, Black Wall Street, as it was called, or the Tulsa Race Massacre, a mob of white people killed hundreds of black people. In 1965, we had the Watts riots right in our very own backyard. In 1967, I lived through, in Newark, New Jersey, a race riots. Happened on my, my very own street was a part of it. I still, one of my earliest uh, memories as a child and after the 67 riots, though, it was so bad that Lyndon B. Johnson ordered an 11-person commission to investigate what was the cause of the urban unrest. The commission was called, and the report was called the Kern Commission Report of 1968. Now, it's some 500 pages long, and for full disclosure, I didn't read it. Uh, but, but I did read what scholar... Uh, Alice George wrote about it in her article in the Smithsonian Magazine, and she highlighted certain parts of the current report, and she said this, that between 1965 and 1968, there were reported 150 race riots across the United States. And the report also declared that our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. And then it warned that unless drastic measures were taken and costly remedies were undergone, that this simply would continue, this polarization would continue of our American community ultimately until the destruction of our basic democratic values. Now let's fast forward 25 years, 1992. We had race riots throughout all of Los Angeles. And let's fast forward from the current report 50 more years 
between 2016 and 2020, we have had countless race riots across our country. And so the problem that was pointed out in the current report obviously wasn't solved. What does the scripture say? Well, the Bible says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. I'll read it. It says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can anyone say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in ages before us. So there's nothing new under the sun, saints, whether it's political divides or pandemics or whether there are race riots that the church has endured all sorts of trials and tribulations, and, and, and it has done it by following the clear, timeless, unchanging word that fits all circumstances and also applies to all believers and God's word being eternal and living. It doesn't have to change that help us to match into any situation that we have to endure. Let me illustrate that. If you're serving grandma's peach cobbler, now that's a black thing, it's a black culture thing, but, but, but if you're serving grandma's peach cobbler, I don't care if LeBron James is coming over or Kawhi Leonard is coming over. I don't care if it's in the fall for Thanksgiving, I don't care if it's in winter for Christmas, I don't care if it's in the spring for your spring banquet or the summer for your church picnic. You don't change grandma's peach cobbler recipe. You just cook that bad boy up and you serve it. It doesn't matter who comes or the circumstances. God has given us his timeless word saying. So it doesn't matter who are the major players. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We simply follow God's timeless eternal word. And you know the result ends up in this place that we can please our God. During the difficult times and trials and upheaval that we're undergoing with pandemic and we're undergoing racial riots and we have political divide, saints of God can always please our God by following what our God has told us. And I have a particular passage in front of us that, that I want us to, to wrestle through and meditate on this morning. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and it tells us how to please our God even in the midst of all of our tumultuous times and these difficult hours and these confusing trials that we're undergoing right now. But before I look at it specifically, let me set the historical context and the thematic or the theological context. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians, turn there with me, in chapter 1, verse 6, and the word of God says this of this church, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, when you receive the message with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, despite great affliction. That's the historical context, that they were undergoing tremendous persecution. They were being oppressed by the societies around them because of their Christian faith. That, that, that persecution is repeated in the next two chapters. It's stated in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Is highlighted in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. They simply were really under great, great, great pressure and great, great, great persecution. That's the historical context that Paul is writing in. And then the theological context is that Paul had told them about the coming, the imminent coming of Christ. 
And so because they were undergoing all this great persecution and theologically crisis coming, that, that troubled them, and many of them were responding in ways that Paul has to now give them these exhortations that we'll look at in chapter 4, 1 through 12. But, but, but one word first, before I look specifically at five exhortations on how we can still yet please our God as we go through our own persecution or oppression in times of political divide and this pandemic and even the racial tension that we're experiencing. This is, this is what Paul says about this church, undergoing all of this. And it can be said of us, too, if we walk by faith. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul introduces his letter by saying in verse 2, We thank God always for all of you, as we mention you constantly in our prayers, because we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and endurance of hope, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Allison Beck, I love how he says it. He summarizes Paul's tribute to this church this way. They have a faith which functioned, a love that labored, and a hope that hung on. So Paul says that of this church as they are doing all kinds of difficulties. And I pray that it would be said of Bethany Baptist Church as well. Um, but but here's, here's the, 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 the passage in front of us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me read it, uh, and then I'll pray. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, the word of God says this. So I'm reading out of a Christian standard Bible. Additionally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, as you are doing, do this even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles, who do not know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. About brotherly love. You don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not depend on anyone. Will you bow with me as I pray? Father, thank you for your timeless word that speaks to our hearts today, instructing us in such a critical matter, in such a critical hour, how we can please you. Grant us great passion and desire to do that. 
and the humility to yield to the working of his spirit so that we can. Bless us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. 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 So here we have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As I said, five exhortations how we can please God in difficult times or times under duress. And the, the verse 1, and then let me just state it and summarize it for you, uh, because it, it helps us to see where Paul is going for the next two chapters, actually. It says in verse 1, Additionally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God as you are doing, do this even more. You, you catch what he said. He just simply said this. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ to live in such a way that pleases God. We already told you how to please God. You are behaving in ways that please God now, but we want you to do it still all the more. So the whole drive of this passage is how to live in such a way to please God. And Paul outlines that with these five exhortations. And they, they begin right here in verse 3, where the text says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality. Did you catch the exhortation? The exhortation to please God is simply this in this verse, verse 3. To stay sexually pure. To stay sexually pure. And so here Paul is giving them a, almost a negative command, as it were, to abstain, uh, to stop, to refrain from, to keep themselves away from sexual pornea. And when he says sexual immorality, he means the whole of it. The idea of sexual immorality is a general command, and it means to stay away from same-sex sex, homosexuality. It means to stay away from self-sex, masturbation. It means to stay away from sex before marriage, fornication. It means to stay away from sex once you're married, adultery, or outside of marriage. So here Paul condemns the whole of it, and he, he ordains what God ordains, that sex is a beautiful, wonderful gift, but given to a man and a woman who committed themselves in the covenant commitment of lifetime. And God gives them the wonderful gift of oneness and sexual pleasure and enjoyment. But sex outside of that, the Bible here tells all believers to abstain from it, to, to, to stop at, at the boundary of sex around the marriage of one man and one woman, to not go beyond the boundaries that God has set up for our good and for his glory. And so here the Bible is giving clear instruction how to please God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. A big theological word, it just means your holiness, and it's not ambiguous. What is holiness in this context? It means staying sexually pure. And let me illustrate that for you, how important this is. Our Lord spoke about this in Matthew chapter 5. Did he not? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, our Lord himself says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than 
for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus is saying that there is real danger if we don't abstain from sexual immorality. And the danger is hell's fire. And he's writing to those who are following him. And so he's writing to a group of professing God-fears or believers. And Jesus is saying that no matter what extreme you have to go to, you have to go to that extreme to guard your sexual purity. And he leaves it without any doubt that it is something by his grace that believers can do. That, that, that believers can, because he says here, if your right hand or your eye is offending you, whose hand is it? It's your hand. <laughs> you open your hand, you close your hand, you open your eye, you close your eye. Satan can do a thousand and one things, but one thing he can't do, he can tempt you, but he can't make you click. He can tempt you, but he can't make you take off your clothes. He can tempt you and even have a bird land on your head, but you don't have to let it build a nest. That he is at war against us, and saints of God, we have to fight back with whatever extreme measure that we have to take. And to do it by God's grace so that we please him and enjoy the satisfaction of obeying him. How did Jesus please God? If we want to please God, ask the question, how did Jesus please the Father? The Bible tells us at three critical junctures in Jesus' ministry in his life that the Father said that the Son was well pleasing to him. He said it at his baptism, at the inauguration of his ministry. It, it, it said it right after the triumphal entry, right before the cross. It said it in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that, that God, or, or, or an amount of transfiguration, I should say, that God said that my son is well-pleasing because he simply did what the Father called him to do. Saints, God wants us to be pure. And he will give us the grace to do it. But we have to fight. And we have to fight because we have an enemy and he tempts. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 7. I'm doing a little bit of a, a theology on this. I, I want to look at a couple places, and I'll go back to 1 Thessalonians. But the Bible says so much to this. And parents, in Proverbs, these parents are talking to their kids as well about keeping themselves sexually pure. Here Solomon's talking about a young man, and this is what the text tells us in verses 4 and 5. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your relative, she, wisdom, will keep you from a forbidden woman, a, wordward, a wayward woman, with her flattering talk. What keeps us away from sexual temptation and yielding to it is wisdom. And wisdom is fearing God, wanting to please God above everything else. Being satisfied with the satisfaction that comes from knowing our God and serving our God. In, in verses 21, why is it so important for us to have this fear of God? Because our enemy is attacking us. Verse 21, she seduces him with her persistent pleading. She lures with her flattering tongue. He follows her impulsively like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer bounding toward a trap until an arrow pierces its liver like a bird darting into a snare. He doesn't know that it will cost him his life. That Satan dresses up sin and it looks enticing and, 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 and he hides the price tag. Saints of God, that sin is pleasurable for only a moment, but its consequences can be eternal. And so here the word of God is warning us with wisdom that yes, sin is tempting. Yes, it's enticing. Yes, it's luring. But yes, it also has a hefty price tag. That sin will simply take you 
farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you infinitely more than you ever want to pay. This is actually a true story, saints. There was a newly married man driving down the street alone, and he saw a prostitute. And he thought, no one will see and no one will know. So he pulls over and engages in the sin of adultery with this prostitute, comes home, and he never confesses it to his wife. But tragically, he contracted AIDS. And tragically, he gave AIDS to his wife. And tragically, she was pregnant, and all three of them died. There simply is a price tag to sin, saints. And when we fear God, we think about the cost. We think about the cost of how, the, how this affect, you know, the church. How will this affect my family? How will this affect my friends if I'm married? How will it affect my kids? How will it affect my grandkids? Well, there's simply a cost to sin. And so Jesus is exhorting us. He's exhorting us to, to do whatever we have to do. And during a time of a pandemic, I get it that we're under stress. I, I get it that we're under pressure. I get it that we feel lonely. I get it that we're at home. I, I, I get it that we, we, we want to click and, and the temptation to click is real. And I, I get it that we want to relieve pressure and no one may know, but God knows. And he simply has something infinitely better than sin. And it's called the obedience of obeying God and staying away from Sexual pernia. And God blesses and he smiles upon us when we fight the battle. But listen, we live in a, a, a perverted, twisted world. Let me do one more thing in Proverbs before I go. In chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs, here the father's warning his son, like every generation needs to warn their sons. I don't care what, where you are in terms of, a, you, know, the, you know, culturally speaking, every single Culture, every single ethnic group, during every single time period in history, has had groups of young people who've thrown off all authority. All authority, whether it's you know, parental authority or whether it's civil authority, they've always been a band of thugs running the streets, simply designed to do whatever they want to do. So in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 through 19, he's warning his son, My son of sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, let us come and just do whatever, don't follow after them. But what we have done, it is absolutely un, it is un, unparalleled that we have taken the group of thugs, as it were, in an urban context, that we've made them our idols. We, we, we made them our prophets for our kids. That, 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 that the rebels of our culture today are some of the biggest iconic figures on social media, and our kids are being enticed to follow after them. That every generation has had those who would seduce and entice. I can think of Marvin Gaye for a generation before me or Prince when I was growing up. But this generation has the Nicki Minaj and the Lil Wayne and the Kardashians and the Jenners. And they're heroes and they're idols to be emulated and followed by those who are walking down fool's hill towards hell. So we just have to push back, saints of God. For us to be sanctified, to be holy, the goal isn't if the world is Pepsi for us to be Diet Pepsi. We have to be orange juice. We have to be radically different than this world, and, and the gospel is calling us to that. I know that was corny, but anyway. The gospel is calling us to that, that we have to be different, and we have to be holy. And so we have to push back from the iconic figures in our, in our culture and take a stand on what God has called us to. 
That's the first exhortation in the passage, that we need to stay sexually pure. And I know you all are saying amen. Praise God. There's a second exhortation in the passage. It's found in verses 9 and 10. So turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he moves away from talking about lust and the sin of lust. And sometimes in order to understand what something is, you have to say what it isn't. So Paul here in the next exhortation tells us how to love and how to love others better. He wants us to love others better. And love simply is not lust, saints. That, that lust is so self-centered, and, and, and it's what we want, when we want it, how we want it, no matter the cost. We're, we're even willing to sin to get it. But, but, but lust is simply, uh, and, and as, we, as it drives us, it's driving us away from God and not towards God. In fact, if I back up a minute, uh, let me look at some of the verses actually in verses 3 through 8 that talk about the sin of sexual purity. Because Paul here says this is the problem. In verse 3, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Gentiles don't know God. So what do they do with their passions? What do they do with their life? Whatever they want to do. Whatever pleases them. But the, but the believer, because by God's grace and God's grace alone through faith in Christ and Christ alone, we know God. And he has given us a new heart and new passions to, to know him, to please him, to serve him. And fighting fire with fire means fan the passion of your love for God so that you don't yield to the carnal passions of your flesh. And that's all the Gentiles have, and that's what the Gentiles do. And believers have to be different than that. And so the passage here, and I'm going to back up because I shouldn't have jumped to point two. It, it, it tells us in verse 6, this means, and it tells us what, what it means not to live in lustful passion. This means one must not transgress against or take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, in all these offenses, as we have also previously told you and warned, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but to live in holiness. And consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. And that transitions us to, the, to this commandment of love. And what is he talking about? He's talking about brotherly love, a familiar love, a, a love of Family, when it's at its best, this is how we're to love in the Christian family. We're to love each other's brothers and sisters, and, and we're to love each other, which is a word that's looking for the affection that we have between one another. It's looking at the relationships that we build with one another. It's when we sacrifice with one another. And so here the text says that we're to love because God has taught us how to love. The source of this love is God. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, a classic verse that we all know, it says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So here God has loved us in such a way that it's real. It's, he has poured out through the Holy Spirit the love of God into our hearts so that now we in turn have God's infinite love account in our, us so that we can keep writing love checks to others and never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever run short or overdraw our account. So we can give, and love is just that, is giving to others. It's sacrificial. It's lust is so self-centered. Love is so other-focused. And so we love because God, through the Holy Spirit, enables and teaches us how to love. So important is this to our Christian testimony. It says in 1 John, 
chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we pass out of death into life. How do we know that? Because we love the brethren, and he, doesn't, he who doesn't love abides in death. That literally, that the point that God saves you, he takes you out of the sphere of death and puts you in a brand new house. You live in a house of love. And, and if you are living in a house of love, it's, a, it's the family. It's, it's a new family, and you love the brothers there. And if you're not loving the brothers in this new family, then you have good reason to question if you have been taken out of death and if you really are a believer at all. That's a strong word. But what God does when he saves us, he really saves us. And he's saving us from our self-centered desires of lust. It says in verse 8, same chapter 4, this one doesn't love, the one who doesn't love doesn't know God. So here... The, the quintessential quality of being a believer is the love that we have for the family of God. And so during a pandemic, saints, we need to love each other. Uh, and love each other more, the text says. L- look at, at verse 10 when it says that, in fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. You are loving one another, and you're loving the entire region. All these Christians in all the area around you, you are loving them. You're loving those who have a different political persuasion. You're loving those on the opposite side of all the issues you're fighting for on social media. You're loving those who are, 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 are look different and are different cultural backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds because none of that matters anymore because God has made us a new family. And so all those other things have to be pressed down and covered over by love. And we continue to pursue one another aggressively, passionately, even during our times of the pandemic. And I'm so encouraged that we can do that, saints. I know some of you all are calling each other and checking up on each other. You're saying, can I pick up some groceries for you? And you're serving your seniors. And that they, that's, what, that's what pleases God, saints. It's not having comfortable circumstances all the time and then I can please God. No, we can please God when the storm simply keeps coming day after day after day after day after day because of God's grace in our lives. We can stay sexually pure and please God, but also we can love one another all the more and please God. And we need to do so especially during these difficult times of a pandemic. So let me ask a question. So how's your love life? And love really is thinking about others before ourselves. It's not like, you know, well, you know, I... My spouse isn't doing this, and my children aren't doing this, and my parents aren't doing this, and my neighbors aren't doing this, and the church members aren't doing this. The hallmark of love is it is deliberately sacrificial, and it's other words. It's just thinking about others. And so uh, loving all the more means that you, you know what pleases your spouse. Then do it. You don't have to wait for them to do anything for you because God has done everything you need. Kids, you don't have to wait to have perfect parents. No one ever has. You can serve your parents and you can love your parents and show respect for your parents. That we can love our roommates, that we can love our friends, that we can love our siblings, that you can love the members of your church. And Paul here says, do it all the more. This church was under persecution. Had every reason in the universe is to pull back and think about me first. And Paul here saying, that doesn't please God. What pleases God is being other-centered and loving all the more. So let me lovingly exhort you to start doing that if you're not. And let me lovingly exhort you who are to do even more because it pleases God. 
It simply pleases God. And then thirdly, there's a third exhortation in our text. Not only are we to say sexually pure and that pleases God and to love others more, but in verse 11 it tells us this. Another exhortation. To seek to lead a quiet life. And it simply means what it says. To make it your aim. Consider this very important. This could be even a matter of honor to earnestly aspire to something, that you want to strongly pursue something. Earnestly you're working after this. You're desiring it very much. And what is that? To lead a quiet life. That's what the text is saying. To lead a quiet life. In 1 Peter, um, 1 Timothy, and let me read you the text. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, that's what we're praying for. Paul writes in 1 Timothy, verses 1 and 2, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. For kings, or you can say presidents, and you can say governors, and you can say mayors, for kings and all those in authority, so that we are pleading to God on behalf of our leaders, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That we are striving to live a quiet life. Our aspiration is to live a quiet life. Um, and why does he say that? Because in this theological context with the incoming, some of them were tempted to be zealots, to do anything but live a quiet life. Um, and for us, in our practical context, it means really almost by a, a further application is to be those pursuing peace. Um, that, that, that to live a quiet life means that under their oppression, that they, they weren't determined to, to, be, to be like Judas, to be zealots. That to live a quiet life here, the context means don't be fanatics. That God is on his throne. God is ruling the heavens and the earth. There's one king and his name is Jesus. He is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Which means he's sovereign over these United States. Which means he's sovereign over the pandemic. Which means we don't have to panic. We don't have to turn to fanatics and zealots and run around and try to fix the universe because there's a God who's sitting on the throne and he's holding every molecule in the cosmos in his hand and every one of them is spinning according to the sovereign plan and his will. He is simply in control. And so we can sleep at night. We don't have to blow up social media trying to fix the world and take it upon ourselves to get a bigger platform so everybody hears us and everybody rallies to our cause. You're not God. You're one of his servants. And he's saying, trust me. And living a quiet life reflects that. It reflects that we trust the Lord. It does. Um, in, in Luke's gospel, let me give you a biblical illustration of this. In chapter 9, verses 52 through 56, um, it says, and he sent messengers ahead of him, Jesus, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them. That's, that's, that's not our spirit. That's not us as Christians. We're, we're, we're not zealots. In John chapter 18, and let me illustrate it one other way. This is why we're not zealots. In John chapter 18, as Jesus is being tried by Pilate, and Pilate's asking him these pressing questions, 
Jesus said in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But it is, but as it is, my kingdom is not from here. That Jesus said, if my kingdom were, yes, we'd go out and fight, but but Jesus' kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's breaking, it, it's, it's broke, the powers are broken in, and it's going to radically transform the kingdoms of the earth and subdue all of them. But at the present hour, Jesus is not saying, my kingdom is like the United States of America versus China. And so, our, so we're embassies of a heavenly kingdom, and our marching orders is to not take the kingdom over by force. We're not zealots. That we take the kingdom over by love. We, we, we have different marching orders from Matthew 5 to 7. Those are our king's edicts. That's, that's how we live and that's how we march. We don't fight like earthly armies. Our weapons aren't carnal like the world's are. We, 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 we use love. We use love. And we overcome our enemies, it says in Romans chapter 12, with love. That's what we do. We love and we love more and we love harder. We just keep loving. And so we seek to live a quiet life. Um, and that means, saints, when you're on social media, we're not trying to build platforms. We're trying to promote Jesus. Uh, we're not trying to, you know, uh, you know, get everybody here, our social media hero. We want everybody to hear about Jesus. So we gospelize, as your pastor says, on Facebook. We gospelize on Instagram. We gospelize on, on, on Twitter. And we're trying to draw attention to the king that people would hear that he died for sinners. He is the only hope to stand before a holy God and not be cast into hell forever. And so you can be trying to patch holes on the Titanic all day long, or you can try to get people off the Titanic by preaching to them the gospel. And we need to gospelize people. The Titanic has all kinds of problems. America has all kinds of problems. And it doesn't mean that we're pacifists and we don't aren't concerned. It just means we keep the main thing, the main thing, wherever we're going. And if we need to help someone along the way, then help them along the way. But our message is clear. We preach Christ and him crucified. And so we center on the gospel. That's what we do. And we live a quiet life. We're praying so we can live our Christian lives and we can gather in public worship and we can gather and preach the gospel. That, that, that's what we're praying for. Um, but, but, but it doesn't mean that we're pacifists. And let me just kind of give a quick overview of that. When you read through the book of Acts, and I encourage you to read through looking at how Paul responds when he is being persecuted and thrown in jail. You know, Paul chooses to disobey man uh, because they tell him he can't preach the gospel. He's going to obey God rather than the man and do that. And then he'll take the consequences. But as he suffers the consequences, he keeps legally appealing in just ways that justice be done. And so in Acts chapter 22, verse 25, it says, As they stretched out, and, out for the lash, they're about to beat Paul. Paul, he retorts, he says, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Paul kept appealing to those who had positions of uh, to execute justice, he kept saying, Don't, doesn't your law say that this is the just way to do it and you're not doing it that way? So Felix was looking for a bribe in chapter 24, 26. Paul didn't do it. Uh, they were looking to give favor to the Jews, and Paul consistently kept appealing to those who had authority to, to, to deal with them justly according to their own laws so that he could live this peaceful, quiet life and keep his mission the main mission, and that was preaching the gospel. Um, 
And so, saints of God, yeah, we're not pacifists, but when we appeal, we appeal that those who have authority, that they deal with us according to justice, and we can certainly do that. But our aim is to live a quiet life. And there's a fourth exhortation here. Not only to stay sexually pure and to love others better and to live a quiet life, but fourthly, the fourth exhortation is for us to mind your own business. That's about as, that's about as practical as you can get, right, saints? So in chapter 4 here, and I'll just read it to you again, we're to seek to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. So we're to carry out the activity, we're to perform the work that the sinners around us, that we're to be busy about our own business. And here it means don't be a busybody. So why is Paul telling them to mind your own business? Because some in the congregation were being busybodies. They were in everybody else's business. And one thing the pandemic has given all of us is a lot of time to be at home and to see what so-and-so is doing on Facebook, to see what so-and-so is doing here, and to check what so-and-so is doing, to be in everybody else's business. And then Paul is saying, mind your own business. That, that you have a lot of work to do to stay sexually pure and to live to love others better and to live a quiet life. He says, just mind your own business. Uh, and in our 24-7 cycle of just being connected to everybody through social media, we really have to work hard at that, some of us more than others. And you need to know your own weaknesses. The story is told that there was some friends out fishing and they didn't catch no fish. They stood out there for all through the early morning and hours and hours, and finally they decided to come in. But while they were out there, they just started really getting transparent. And they were sharing all their struggles. And guy number one shares all of his struggles. Guy number two shares all of his struggles. Guy number three shares all of his struggles. And then when they got back to the shore, they realized that the fourth guy hadn't said anything the whole time. And they said, man, we've been just really sharing our whole heart. Like, you haven't said anything. You haven't said anything about your struggle. And he said, yeah. He said, that's because I was waiting till we got on shore because my struggle is gossip, and I couldn't wait to get off of this boat. Uh, but, but, but the text is clear to mind your own business. And there's, there are four people that get hurt when we slander, that the person that you're slandering is hurt. Um, the person you're saying this to, you hurt them. And you hurt yourself when you're slandering. And then you hurt, you, you hurt the whole church. Because it becomes a place where people are really afraid to share the intimate struggles because they're afraid that it's going to be, be a part of the Bethany Baptist news and spread through the whole church without any confidentiality. Even if what you want to, you've learned about somebody through the gossip prayer line, that, that even if you've learned something true, why is it helpful to share it? If it's not helpful to share it, then don't. And we have to really battle saints sometimes. To fight against the temptation to stay sexually pure, to love others more, to live a quiet life, to mind your own business. Sometimes we have to fight to do that. But guess what, saints? It's worth it because it pleases God. It pleases God. And here during this pandemic that we can really seek earnestly to please God. He's taken away so many of our idols right now. He stripped away a lot of things that we would normally do. But he hasn't, he hasn't forsaken us. He's right here so we can have him. Is knowing God by, by grace, by faith in Christ, and Christ alone. We, we know God, and, and you can use this time to really develop a more, more intimate relationship with God and please him, but this is how you do it, staying pure, loving others more, living a quiet life, and minding your own business. And then fifth, the fifth exhortation that the text gives us 
it's, it's right at the end of verse 11, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, to work with your own hands. And let me call this exhortation to earn your own living, to earn your own living is, is to work hard and earn enough money so you can pay your own bills, to do an honest day's work. And Jesus gave dignity to hard work that, that we, we, we call him the son of man and the son of God. And, but he's also called a carpenter's son. So Jesus gave dignity to just working an eight to five, building things like, like right in front of me here. He, he, he worked hard for 30 years of his life. The apostle Paul made tents. That there's dignity in hard work. There's dignity and there's profit in all labor, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs. That we need to really work hard. And work hard so that we can pay our own bills. And the Bible says that that's a good thing. So why is Paul saying, you know, work hard with your own hands and live a quiet life? And Because some people were uh, being nosy and some people were being lazy. And theologically, they say, hey, Christ is coming back. So if Christ is coming back any day and we're undergoing all this persecution, so this must be the end, that, that, that here we got a, a pandemic and fire season is coming and there's racial rise and this might be the end. And so why work hard? And the federal government, after all, is giving me more money to stay at home than to go to work. So why work hard? Why do that? Because it pleases God. That's why. The text says it just, it just pleases God. To working hard and, 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 and paying for our own bills, that it literally, the text is saying, that it pleases God. That the last conversation I had with my grandmother, I was 20 years old and I flew back to Newark, New Jersey, and she lived a hard life. She had lived uh, through all of, you know, most of her life through Jim Crow. Uh, black coat laws that enforce segregation. So as a black woman, that she literally, by law and by culture and custom, uh, could be acted against with all kinds of prejudice and, un, and inequities. And so she suffered through all of that. And she was brilliant. She worked her way through college and got a college degree somehow um, just through hard work. And she was a brilliant administrator. The company that she worked for is a small business. They flourished. The owners bought new cars every year, and they paid her slave wages. And if she wanted to work, she couldn't complain. And you've heard the stories before that I had holes in the bottom of my shoe and I put cardboard in the bottom of my shoe and that's how I, my grandmother literally, literally did that. And so she's telling me, but Bobby, you can make it. And I'm thinking, well, of course I can, Grandma. <laughs> you know, I, I, won, I was a successful athlete. I actually had my own private business at uh, you know, 20 years old that was doing well. I was going to UCLM, of course I can. Uh, I, was th I didn't say that to her, I was thinking that. But then I... But later in years, I thought, you know, my grandmother was saying that, that the world you live in, Bobby, is way different, different than mine. That um, I could legally be humiliated, forced into the back of a bus. I could legally be humiliated and not be served at a restaurant. I could legally be humiliated and told that because I was black that I couldn't have this job. That, that, that God in his sovereign grace had so, so redeemed America from the weight of this overt oppression, and all of it hasn't been lifted in a generation who would expect that it would. But things have changed enough where if I worked hard, that was her point. But Bobby, if you work hard, then you can make it. And I just remember my dad, like my dad would just work so hard because he learned that from his, grand, my, my, his mom, my grandmother. He worked for the telephone company, and they wouldn't give him an application. 
They said a black man's not smart enough to pass the test. And so my dad appealed to the Urban League, and they gave him the test. And so my dad passed the test, and they said, well, black people are lazy, and they don't show up to work. They party all weekend, so we're not going to waste money training you just to have you fired in two weeks. And so they made him work in the mailroom. Not a month, not two months, but an entire year. And he lived through the humiliation of working in the, the mailroom, although he was qualified to be an installer. And then after years of working in the telephone company, his boss came and said, Robert, you know I'm not going to promote you. I'd want to promote you. All of his other peers have been promoted, but they're not going to promote you. And my dad lived under all of that and never taught me to be angry. And you know what? For 35 years working for the telephone company, my dad called and said, one day, one day. And, and, I just, and I learned from my grandmother and my father that what the Bible here is saying is that God has made us in his imago day in his image so that we can do things that God can do. We have abilities and talents that we need to hone and work hard, and it pleases God when we do. To push through the persecution, to press through the oppression, to press through the difficulties of living in a fallen world where when you work, you only get thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow, and yet still do it when your flesh is saying, I don't want to do it, I don't want to go to work. I would rather lay back and let other people take care of me. And so if you're like 40 and 50 and 30, parents, listen to me carefully, that you have no moral obligation to take care of your healthy, well children into their 30s and 40s. In fact, it even says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 12, it just says that they don't work, not that they can't work, there are times when people can't work, you're fired or you're laid off because of the pandemic or your business is gone, but it says that they won't work, then don't let them eat. We simply don't have a moral obligation to take care of people who won't take care of themselves. And that's Paul's exhortation here. Uh, There are times when we have to undergo the burden of of working hard in order to provide for ourselves. That pleases God when we do that. But but there are other ways we can handle burdens, and let let me be clear. In in, in Psalm 55, verse 22, some burdens you shed. Some burdens you shed. In Psalm 55, 22, it says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Just cast your burdens on the Lord that he cares for you. And other burdens you share with one another, it's Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That during a pandemic, yes, we need family to help. Yes, it's okay for the church to help you financially if, you're, if you don't have a job right now because of the pandemic. So we call it the friends or family, the church. Yes, that's fine. That's okay. Emotionally, we can share our burdens. And financially, we can share our burdens. That's part of the love of the saints. But then saints of God, in Galatians 6, 5, it says, it says this. And turn there with me if you aren't in Galatians already. So some burdens you shed, Psalm 55, 22. Some burdens you share, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. But Galatians 6, 5 says this. For each person will have to carry his own load. <laughs> That's like a Roman soldier carrying his backpack. My, my 20-year-old literally just got back from Quantico, Virginia, where, where she was in the Marines Officer Candidate Training School. You're talking about a boot camp. Going through the Marines boot camp is like going through hell and back. That she had to carry a 70-pound backpack for hikes that went mile after mile after mile after mile and uphill and through all kinds of terrain. And if you couldn't carry your own backpack, she would get back to the barracks 
And that, that young lady was gone, and that young lady was gone. First, day one, seven of them were gone. Halfway through, half of them were gone by the time they got in because they couldn't carry their own load. And here the text is saying, saints of God, we have to carry our own load. Some loads you got to shoulder and carry uh, your own load. But why keep working hard? It pleases God. There are only two days that matter. We don't have yesterday is gone. We don't have tomorrow, and it's not even promised to us. But you have today, saints. You have today, and it is a stewardship because the second day that matters is judgment day. But what better way to be found when Christ comes back that you're busy doing the master's business? And what business is that? Whatever he has given you to do, that is a sacred calling. If you're a janitor, that's a sacred calling. If you're a school teacher, that's a sacred calling. Whatever your vacation is, that is a sacred calling that God wants to use you as a light in that place. He hasn't called many noble and many mighty. He hasn't given us all platforms where we can stand up like a president and change the direction of an entire nation. But he's given us all an opportunity to be a witness in the light by living a sexually pure life, by loving others more, by leading a quiet life, by minding our own business and earning our own living through a pandemic and through everything else. And people will simply look at you and they'll say, how in the world does he or she do that? No matter what I throw at my students, that student over there, they always work hard and do the best that they can. No matter how hard and what, what the challenges at work, they always show up late or, or early, and they always press through it. What is it about this person? How is it about this person that I can always share with them in confidence and know that they will keep things private? And it gives you an opportunity to gospelize. <laughs> this is how we make a difference. This is a true story. Phil DeCourcy tells it from a book that he that's pretty popular. It's a, it's a man named Beverly King. He was the richest man in a little town called Graham, Texas, and he owned a bank. He owned other businesses. He owned a hotel, and but he was really down to earth. He'd wear just jeans and walk around with everybody. Sometimes he'd pass up business cars. And one day he was uh, at the mechanic shop, and a car putters in. It was a salesman from out of town. His car broken down. The mechanic looks at it and just says, uh, "I can fix your car." But I don't have to order the part, and it won't be here till tomorrow. So you'd have to stay overnight. And the salesman asks, is there a hotel in town? He said, yep, there's one right down the street. So as a, the salesman is turning to, to head down the street, he, he sees Beverly King standing there in his jeans and everything else and says, hey, you mind carrying my bags down the street? So Beverly King, he looks at the guys, sure. So he's carrying the man's bags down the street, and they begin small talk, and the salesman asked him, says, hey, I, when I was driving, and I saw a mansion at the edge of town, and I was just wondering, how, whose mansion is that, and how could, in the world could anybody afford a mansion like that in, in this little town? And Beverly King, King looked at him and just said, this is, this is my mansion. He said, how in the world did you to get a, afford a mansion like that? And he just looked at him and said, by carrying my own bags. By carrying my own bags. And the saints of God, that God in his providence has gifted us and blessed us to be here at such a time as this. And, uh, and we, we, we can make an impact by staying sexually pure. We can make an impact by loving others more. We can make an impact by living a quiet life and trusting our king, not being frantic, not being zealous. And we, we can make an impact by minding our own business. It strengthens the church. The opposite weakens it. 
And we can make an impact by carrying our own load. And the text gives us this conclusion. And, and, and this is where Paul has been driving in verse 12. Why are all these exhortations and why about God's grace and faith in Christ? Should I, have, should, should, should I live this way? And it says this in verse 12. So that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders. Did you get it? Did you hear what's at stake? Did you hear what's at stake in how you live your life? That this is what's at stake. Our testimony is at stake. Your credibility is at stake before unbelieving. An unbelieving watching world, they hear your talk, but they want to see if your walk matches your talk. And if it doesn't, you have no credibility. But if it does, it gives credibility. We are doing the gospel of grace that we preach. And that pleases God. And then there is a second here reason why it is that we live sexually pure and we love others more and we live this quiet life and mind our own business and work hard with our hands. There's another reason, and the text is, says this, so that we don't depend upon anyone. That instead of being a, a burden to the church, we're a blessing to the church. That here being the mission that God has called us to, it is a team event. It requires everybody to carry their own load, to do their own part. And saying of God, we need you like ever before during a pandemic. We need you like ever before during times of political distress. We need you like ever before during times of racial upheaval. We need the saints of God to stand out like lights during this turbulent, dark period of time. And how do you do it? By living out the will of God that stated so clearly in this passage by God's grace. And if you do it, saints that we'll make it through. The church has made it through pandemics. The church has made it through political unrest. The church has made it through racial upheaval and strife before, and we can too, by submitting ourselves to the grace, the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a gospel singer of yesteryear, Mahalia Jackson, and she's a singer song. Not, she's a singer song saying, so I love the song. She's saying, how did I make it over? All these years. Um, she lived in a time of great persecution. Very difficult for a black woman to live during that time. But, 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 but she's saying, I'm going to make it over. How did I make it over? My soul will look back and wonder, how did I make it over? As soon as I see Jesus, the man who died for me, the man who bled and suffered and hung on Calvary, I'm going to sing a song because that's how I made it over. Saints to God, we can make it. We can make it through this persecution, and we can do it and please God. Let's submit to him. Amen? Amen. I'm going to have you bow as I pray. Father, thank you for your word. Yeah. That it is more than bread. That we live by it, Lord, and, uh, and you sustain us through it. And you'll sustain us through this pandemic and these trials and these hard times, and we thank you for that. But help us, Lord to be intentional about the stewardship that you've given us with our hands and our time and our tongue, Lord, and our purity so that you'll be glorified through us as we yield ourselves to you wholly and completely. In Christ's name I pray, amen.